Good morning, Living Water. My name is Mike. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take that out right now. I want to jump right into our text today. It's Esther chapter 9. That is where we're going to be. We have a lot of ground to cover. So if you're willing and able, if you would please stand as we hear from the Lord. Again, Esther 9 is where we're at. We're going to cover the first 19 verses. uh, And as is customary, we will read from the English Standard Version. Word of God says the following. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshendatha and Delphon and Aspatha, and Poretha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Vijatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder." Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, 
and rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. The Word of God, let's pray. Lord, your word is sacred. It is special, and it should be treated as such. I thank you for the great honor and privilege it is to open it up, to declare it, to read it before your people, and then seek to preach it. And I pray, Lord, that your people here today will hear a better sermon than the one that I've prepared, that you would speak directly to your people right where they're at and minister to them through me. And I ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a special time of year as we transition, maybe ever so slowly, from winter to spring. And we see all these reversals in nature. Uh, Heidi prayed it. It was a part of her prayer, and I had to smile because I knew that's where I was going with the beginning of my sermon here, is to talk about some of the reversals we see around us at this time of year. We're moving from darkness to light as the evenings get longer and longer with each day. The, the quietness of winter as birds fly south uh, during the cold months, uh, when spring is sprung, they return and we're awakened in the morning to the sound of birds chirping. Heard it just this morning outside my bathroom window. And winter is often, symbol, it often symbolizes death and decay. And conversely, spring is about life and rebirth. And we see plants and trees and flowers begin to bloom and blossom. A complete reversal. The cold dissipates eventually, right? And the warm weather comes in. We see these reversals in nature at this special time of year. But this time of year is, is also special for another reason. In the month of March, March Madness is on full tilt. I don't know if you've been following the college basketball uh, tournament. We love this tournament because it's about reversals. It's about upsets. Big-time schools from big-time conferences going down uh, and losing against some school we never heard of from a conference we didn't even know existed. And, and I wrote this, this intro on Wednesday, and, and I have here uh, citing St. Peter's Peacocks from last year, right? They, they went to the Elite Eight as a number 15 seed, took out the Blue Blood Kentucky beat another team, a number one, and made this great run through the tournament. And I can't say it was a prayer, because it wasn't, but I, I offered up a, a thought to the Lord. I said, so I guess it's a prayer, I don't know. I, I said, uh, it'd be great if, you know, you could update my, my illustration here this year, as uh, I preached this weekend. And the Lord, in his kindness, in his goodness, gave me Fairleigh Dickinson. 16 seed for the second time 
ever in all of history has beaten a number one on Friday night. Fairleigh Dickinson, if I'm not mistaken, the smallest team in Division I basketball, uh, took out Purdue, who has literally a giant on their team, Zach Eady, player of the year, seven foot four. The tallest player on Fairleigh Dickinson is 6'8". Their, their leading scorer is a point guard who's 5'8". And I said to my son, Nate, I said, see how short that guy is? I said, that's what it would look like if I was out there. And they won, and they took out Purdue, and I thought, this is perfect because I'm in Penn State country. I can talk about Purdue losing and not upset anybody because Purdue beat Penn State to win the Big Ten Championship. So I was like, the Lord was writing my sermon Friday night, finishing up, finishing touches. I appreciate that. But the book of, of Esther is filled with reversals, uh, so many of them. And I want to cite some for you and do that, which will serve for us as kind of a refresher as to how we got to Esther 9. And many of these reversals that we see in, in Esther pertain to the antagonist, the villain. You know his name, Haman. Haman starts out in the book very powerful. By the end of his life, He's rendered powerless. He has everybody falling before him in the beginning, except, of course, Mordecai. But by the end of Haman's life, he's falling before Queen Esther, begging for his life. He writes a script to give himself honor and recognition. But in a reversal, the script is flipped. And that honor and recognition goes to his arch nemesis, Mordecai. His heart is bent on destruction, yet he gets destroyed. The gallows that he erected were for Mordecai, but it was those same gallows on which Haman was hung. He intended to plunder the wealth of the Jews, but in a great reversal, his estate becomes Jewish property. And upon his death, the Jews go from fear and dread to gladness and joy. A true reversal indeed. The book begins with a fast and it ends with a feast. And as we are here in Esther 9, the Jews are sentenced to die at the hands of their enemies. But as the text says, there's a great reversal that occurs and they get mastery over them and they end up taking out their enemies. And that's where we are. Last weekend, we covered Pastor, uh, Pastor Ben covered chapter 8 of the book of Esther. And his sermon was titled, Saving Lives. And he showed us how, how God uses people, all sorts of people, in all sorts of situations to save lives in all sorts of different ways. Then he, he raised the notion, he said, what about the inverse? Does God ever use people to take lives? In judgment. Unless you think football season is over, it's not, because Pastor Ben punted that question to this weekend. So the speaker of this weekend, who you probably didn't know who that was, but I did. So I will gladly receive the punt. I'll uh, try not to muff it and see if I can make a few moves and improve our field position. So I will gladly receive. But I have a reversal of my own. His sermon was entitled, Saving Lives. Mine, the reversal, taking 
lives. Not as positive and as encouraging, admittedly so, but isn't that the nature of truth? Truth is, is not always uplifting and, and things we want to hear. Sometimes truth is just dark and depressing, brings us down, but it's true nonetheless. So today, we're going to the dark side. We are. We're going to talk about things that are dark and disturbing. And here's how I'd like to frame it. Esther 9, for many people, they find it very troubling for various reasons. It's bloody. It's violent. It's complicated. And it's highly controversial. Because people read it and they ask the question. Maybe you asked this question as I was reading it here. Is this right? Are the Jews acting morally acceptable? How, how does God feel about this? Is he pleased with what's going on? Or are they sinning? These are the questions that surround Esther 9. And, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and beat a dead horse because we've talked about this before. In Esther, God is not mentioned. We don't have the divine perspective. We don't. So when something happens... We don't read, well, and the angels rejoiced. Or something happens and the wrath of God was kindled. We don't have that, which makes our job kind of hard because we then have to speculate. Careful speculation to be sure, but speculation nonetheless. But I don't think that, that doesn't mean that we can't have clarity. I think we can reach certain conclusions and have confidence in those conclusions despite that. And that's what I'm going to hope to show you today. Esther 9.1 sets the stage, tells us what this day is. We've arrived. It's the 12th month of Adar, the 13th day. This is the day that we've been building towards for the last six chapters. This has been the day on the horizon. It's finally here. And it's a very bloody day. This day and the next day. So I want to deal directly with what troubles most people about this passage of Scripture. Are the Jews behaving in an ethical manner? Specifically, Queen Esther. That's who we're going to focus in on. And I need to tell you, commentators are split right down the middle. you got people on one side that say, yes, what they're doing here is right. It's appropriate. It's actually good. Then you got people on the other side that say, no, no, this is inappropriate. This is immoral. This is vindictive overkill because the Jews go too far. And that's the debate. And the, the primary accusation is leveled, as I said, to Queen Esther. Falls at her feet. And, and what commentators will say that are on the one side here, they'll say, this once demure little girl named Esther has grown into a vindictive queen, bloodthirsty, intoxicated with her own power. This is the charge against her. And they arrive at this conclusion primarily because of the interaction between her and the king. The, 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 the point where king, the king talks to Esther and what she says. What happens at that point there is 500 men have been killed in the, in the, the citadel in Susa. 
and ten, uh, uh, all ten of Haman's sons are dead. And, and the king comes to Esther with a question and an offer. Let's look at it in verse 12, Esther 9, 12. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. So the king is aware of the carnage that is taking place in his city, in Susa. He then inquires of the other provinces. And then, no one knows why. No one has a clue, but he makes an offer to her. which The text just doesn't tell us. He says, what else do you want? What is your further request? It will be granted to you. And here's what Esther says. Well, we've killed a lot of people today, and I want another day to do more killing. Verse 13, Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. That's her first request. More time to do more killing. But she has a second request. The second part of verse 13. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. She wants another day for more carnage to take place. And she wants the already dead corpses of Haman's ten sons to be hung on the gallows. You can see why the morality of Esther is called into question. And one commentator, he, he seemed to be leading the charge. I saw his name in multiple places. Uh, he was kind of summing up what the critics are saying regarding Queen Esther. His name is Michael Fox. All right? Not that Michael Fox. Uh, I don't know if his middle initial is J. It could be. Uh, but this isn't Marty McFly. Okay? This is a different Michael Fox. Here's what he says. He sums it up so well. He says, given the stipulations of Haman's decree, the Jews' enemies could not lawfully have attacked them on a second day. Therefore, the Jews were safe, and Esther's request was literally overkill. Esther no longer even attempts to justify ethically her request to the king, nor does she mention the welfare of her people. Mordecai isn't mentioned as instigating this second day, and his decree did not call for it. Apparently, Queen Esther is coming to her own, acting on her own authority as a bloodthirsty monarch intoxicated with power, living up to her name Ishtar, the Persian goddess of love and war. That is a fair representation of the one side of the debate. And perhaps that accurately represents your perspective on the matter. You agree with Michael Fox. And that may be the case. Again, let me continue working on this dead horse. We don't know. This is historical narrative minus divine commentary. Not entirely sure. But even if he's right, I don't think that should cause us to go into a tailspin. And here's why. I get this from an author and preacher named Brian Chappell. He makes an excellent point that we can apply here to Esther 9 but I share with you because you can apply what he's going to say here in a moment across the breadth of Scripture 
as we see, we read about, you know, uh, God, godly people saying and doing some very questionable things, like here in this text. Brian Chappell, in his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, he says this, Do you see that the Bible takes care to tar virtually every biblical figure but one? Of course, that is the Savior. So that we won't turn to anyone but God for ultimate aid or example. Without blushing, the Bible honestly presents the human frailties of its most significant characters so that we will not expect to find within fallen humanity any whose model behavior merits divine acceptance. What is he saying? As you read through your Bible and you're looking for someone to emulate, he says you really can't emulate anyone but Christ. Because they all have uh, frailties, they all have weaknesses, and we see their sin on full display. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And see how helpful this insight is as we make our way through the Bible and we, we see some of the moral failings of people like Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Samson, David, and Peter. And the list goes on. So he makes a great point here. And you can, if you want, apply that to Queen Esther in this chapter. However, I'm not sure that's what's going on. I'm not sure that's what's needed. I'm, I'm kind of in the other camp. I, I, I'm not with Michael Fox. I, I'm going to try to make my case here that the Jews and what they're doing in Queen Esther is morally acceptable. So let me make my case. My mom said I would uh, make a good defense attorney because I could always wiggle out of things. Well, here we go. We're going to find out if mom's right on that. Okay, let me defend Esther, and I'm going to give you seven lines of defense, all right, in an attempt to exonerate the queen. Defense number one, history is on her side. What do I mean by that? If you remember, it's probably more than a month ago now, I took us back to 1 Samuel 15. God commands the Israelites to completely wipe out the Amalekites. Leave no survivors. They failed in doing that. King Saul's leading the charge, doesn't get the job done, and that led to the feud between the Jew, Mordecai, and the uh, Amalekite, or the Agagite, of uh, being Haman. Haman, a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. So if the Jews had did what they were supposed to do back then, it's highly probable that Haman doesn't even get born. He doesn't even exist. Therefore, his edict to destroy, kill, and annihilate wouldn't exist, which is the very edict that leads to where we're at today. It gives rise to all this bloodshed. So the Jews were not faithful back then. They weren't thorough. And the queen, I think, is aware of this, and she's not going to let it happen again. And evidently, there's 300 more men in Susa who are hell-bent on carrying out Haman's edict. So this isn't about Esther being bloodthirsty. This is about her being thorough. Defense number two. We don't have all knowledge. We don't. For all we know, Esther has some intel that a second attack is being planned unlawfully, granted, the next day. 
She might know that, and the author just simply chooses to not tell us that. So we may not have all the facts. And if, you, if you've ever been a boss or you're in leadership, you make certain decisions based upon the knowledge that you have. But the people that you oversee and supervise, they may not have all the knowledge that you have. Therefore, they might critically judge your decisions and your actions. They just don't have all the details. And we may not have all the facts here. So I think there might be an element of humility to apply on our end. And we ought not disparage Esther because that might not be the route to take. She might know something that we don't know. And I think this could give rise to reasonable cause, a reasonable doubt. Defense number three, this one's huge. The Jews' violent acts were a lawful right to self-defense. Can't forget that. It says all throughout Esther that the enemies of the Jews hated them. And that's what's instigating all of this. But nowhere in Esther, to my knowledge, I looked at it, I don't think it's in there, we ever see the Jews hating their enemies. They're not acting out of hate here, they're acting out of self-defense. To see it, we need to go back to the edict. Mordecai's edict in the last chapter, Esther 8, verses 11 and 12. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and do what? Defend their lives. Yes, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And we read it in the text today, too. In chapter 9, it also says to defend themselves. See, they followed proper protocol to protect themselves. They're doing it under the law. That, that is why Esther came to the king, to have this written into the law. This is not murder. This is justified killing. And, and, and I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence or anything, but... But killing and murder are not the same. Sometimes I think we, we mistakenly think that, that they're synonyms. They're not. Killing is taking a life. Murder is taking a life unlawfully. And that's not what's happening here. They, they have, under the law, the right to use lethal force. And sometimes the, the essence of self-defense is in order to save your life, you have to take someone else's because they're the aggressor and they just keep coming at you. So they're working within the legal system. These are not vigilantes. Defense number four, it's a limited attack. It's limited in the sense it's self-defense, right? But it's also limited in the fact that of its scope and its intent. When Esther asked for that second day, if you look at it carefully, she doesn't want a second day throughout all the provinces of the Persian Empire, just Susa, just the citadel. She might have known something about that, the epicenter of where this is all taking place. This is Haman's hometown. This is where you know, the, the, the following is probably going to be the strongest. She doesn't say she wants to, to have you know, more bloodshed throughout the province, which if she did, 
that number 75,000 would have grown exponentially. So she, she doesn't appear to be this bloodthirsty monarch trying to maximize the carnage. It's limited. It's limited in its scope, and it's limited in its intent. If you look on the screen, we have the edict there. If you look in the middle about children and women included, the edict allowed for that. If children and women were to attack, they could kill them. But the text says three times it describes who was killed. It says every single time men. Limited. Also, they could have plundered their goods because the edict was going to match up with Haman's one-to-one. But they don't take advantage of that. They don't. Again, three times in Esther 9, it says they laid no hands upon the plunder. Repetition is a great way to convey truth. Repetition is a great way to convey truth. Repetition is... All right, I'll stop. I was waiting for people to laugh. I was going to keep going until I got some chuckling. All right, we know this. This is kind of a hermeneutical principle. When you see repetition in the Bible, it's important. Listen up. It's not just repetition for the sake of repetition. So I think this, this, the, the, lack, the fact that they didn't plunder the goods is further evidence that this isn't about economic advancement. This is about protection and self-defense. Defense number five, a mass killing was never the original intent. We've got to go back again to chapter 8, verse 5. Here's Esther before the king. She said, that's Esther, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke. Key word there. Revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he, he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. She simply wanted Haman's edict revoked. This, this request was a, hey, just don't kill us kind of request, right? She's she just like, let that go away so that we can live. That was the original request. She's not looking for a license to massacre people. And that leads us to defense six. A fair warning was given. Because that edict couldn't be revoked, right? We know that. Esther 8.8, it says it plainly. A new edict had to be written. And this edict should have served as a warning to people. If I'm a follower of Haman, all right, I'm a disciple of his, I, I, I hate the Jews, and I'm going to attack them on this day. And I'm following the events of the, the news that's going on, and I'm getting ready, sharpening my sword, getting ready for that day. But then I hear, oh, there's another edict? Oh, the Jews can defend themselves without any legal repercussion, and I could be killed? I might just decide to stay home that day and watch Netflix. I mean, that, that could have happened. Except for the Netflix part, of course. But It was a warning. If I choose to continue on with the attack, I do so at my own risk. I think that speaks to the hatred of the people coming against the Jews. 
If I further, you know, continue on, despite hearing about this second edict that should have been a warning to me, it's to my own undoing. Cost me my own life. But people didn't relent. They persisted and they were destroyed. But a warning was issued. Let me give you another uh, line of evidence here. It comes at the very end of chapter 8, the last part of the last verse, verse 17. It says this, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Is it possible that this is God's plan for peace? This was his plan for a peaceful solution. Fear had fallen on them. Fallen from where? Well, God is not mentioned. Here we go again, right? Maybe this is God putting the fear upon them so that they might repent. But they don't. They keep on going and they are killed. But there was a way out, multiple ways out of this. They didn't have to die. As the phrase goes, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Lastly, defense number seven. Not only was a fair warning given, but a further warning was given. Let's deal with the morbidity of Esther's request asking for the already dead bodies of Haman's sons to be hung on the gallows. I'm convinced that when we read gallows, because it happens to me all the time, I think Wild West, platform, trapdoor, uh, a noose, someone hanging uh, by the neck from a rope. That's not what's going on here. That's not ancient Persian hanging. There, it, there's, a, there's a translation issue here. I, think, I believe Pastor Mike covered this. We just don't have a good uh, way to translate it. But what's going on here is what she's asking for is you, you and this is going to get a little graphic, but I'm going to, I'm going to describe, we need to know what's going on here. It's to take an already dead body and take a pole or a stake and run it through them. Either the torso or actually impaling, and I'll choose my words carefully here, you can go up through an, a certain orifice. All right, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Probably gave it away with the up through, but you know it's disturbing. What do, we, do we want to preach the Bible? I mean, we could have just shown you the VeggieTales movie. You know, you remember the scene, right, where the turnips were hung, you know, the vegetable nobody likes, hung up on the stake and turnip juice fell down? No, of course not, because it's not in the movie, right? I have a job to preach the Word of God and to exegete it, draw from it. This is what's going on, okay? You run this through the person, you turn it upright, put it in a hole, and there they hang. That's what she's asking for here. We need to know what's going on. It sounds disturbing because it is. But whether you realized it or not, if you come to church through these doors here, you walked right by it every single day. Because right outside my office hangs this image right here from the Bible Project. And if I draw your attention to the far right-hand corner at the bottom there, that is what we're describing. That's what she's asking for. Ten bodies hanging there. Now that we have a visual, we can feel the weight of this. 
Why did she make this request? Now we're getting into what? Motivation. Text just doesn't tell us. But I think we can kind of narrow it down. It's one of two things. One, she's vindictive. She's got hate in her heart. She hates Haman. She hates his sons. And to satisfy this bloodlust in her heart, she's like, put them up on stakes. I want to look at them and I want to feel the satisfaction that I did that to them. I win, you lose. Maybe that's what's going on. Or, or she's looking to limit further bloodshed by providing a warning, a warning, a deterrent. That's what she's offering. She's saying in her heart, I don't want to see any more people die. This has been horrible. This has been bloody. These men are already dead. They're the ones, they're the sons of the guy who started all of this. I'm going to put that up there so that no other people choose to attack us because this is what could happen to you, right? I liken it to a skull and crossbones, right? If you see that on, say, a, a box of rat poisoning, there's one of two motivations of the rat poison people. They're like, oh, you know, rubbing their hands together like wicked, evil sadists. Like, if you eat this, that's what's going to happen to you. You'll be dead, skull and crossbones. No, it's just a warning to say if you don't use this product the way it was intended, you don't properly use it, and you decide to eat it, you could die. That's what they're saying. And likewise, Esther is saying, if you want to kill us, you could end up like that, because we're going to defend ourselves. And I think she can do it without any spiteful hate in her heart. That's my defense of Esther. Seven lines. You can disagree. Many people do. Maybe you see it a different way and you have different reasons. You have every right to be wrong. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. All right, I'm just joking. But it's a tough text. I mean, it is. But it's in our Bibles. And we preach through, just straight expositionally, just through the Bible. We don't avoid things. We didn't conveniently jump past this and get to the Feast of Purim. We're dealing with it. But before we conclude here, we need to deal with this notion of reversal. It's huge. It's huge. It, it reminds me, when I think of reversal and how much we really like a good reversal, because you can have a bad reversal too. But I, I'm thinking about a story that was uh, told by Ray Comfort. Uh, Ray Comfort is an evangelist and uh, he goes out on the street and shares the gospel. And he, uh, he, but he found himself one day in children's ministry. So he's out of his element. And if you ever are in children's ministry and you don't know what to do, uh, do what Ray did and bring candy. Okay? So he brings candy and he, and he stands up in front of the group of kids and he says, All right, everybody line up here. I'm going to give each of you a piece of candy. And what he saw was the bigger, stronger, more aggressive kids bullied their way to the front. And then the, you know, the weaker, maybe more timid kids were all the way in the back. And Ray didn't like this. So once everybody was lined up, he took his candy and he walked around to the other end and gave away the candy that way. And, it, and he says it gave him great delight in doing that. And I think God has great delight in reversals as well. And maybe you're here today 
and things are not going well for you and you want a reversal. Maybe your whole life is like, I wish I could just throw the whole thing into reverse. But there's a problem. There's a problem because we're limited. We can't bring about our own reversals. The Lord Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So as much as we might want to reverse things, I don't think that's our part. Our part is repentance. We repent, God reverses according to his will. Because I'm not going to stand up here and, and tell you finances not where you want them to be, your financial struggles, come to Jesus, he'll reverse your bank account. Uh, you got health issues, come to Jesus, he'll reverse whatever's ailing you. Hurting, come to Jesus, he'll alleviate all your suffering. Life not going the way you want it, come to Jesus. He'll do a reversal on your circumstances and make all your troubles go away. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that. I have no grounds to do so. But there's one exception. If you're here today and you're saying, I'm broken over my sin. I, I'm not living the way I ought to. I feel lost. I feel condemned. I, I feel like I'm under the wrath of God. Yet I'm trying to do all the right things. And I'm trying to stop doing all the wrong things. But frankly, I'm tired and I'm weary. I can stand here with great confidence. And it gives me great delight to say you're in the right place. You've come to the right location. Because the one you need the most said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I'm wondering if there's anybody in here that agrees with me that when you come to Jesus, you find deep satisfaction for the longings of your soul in Him. Anybody? Anybody have that? I do. And people need to know this. This isn't some religious exercise or biblical exposition. Jesus changes lives. He does complete reversals. You need to come to Christ and here's the promise He gave, very clear. Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. You have that promise on the strength of not My Word, it's His Word. It's what He said. And this is huge. You know why? Because there's a decree against all of us. It is the decree of death. You can't reverse it. It can't be altered. The soul that sins shall die. Have you sinned? You got sin on your record like I do? There's, there's an irreversible decree against you. The law can't be revoked, but you can be redeemed. In the greatest reversal that humanity has ever seen, rescued from death, a man wanted to become like God. That's who we are. Not just that man, but man, mankind. People want to become like God. But in a reverse, God became a man. Jesus the Son existed forever in glory, but in a reversal, He came to earth in humility. 
He was rich, but in a reversal, he became poor. We ought to die for our sins, but in a reversal, Jesus died in our place. Our sin brought death, but in a reversal, Jesus' death brings life. Jesus died, but in a reversal, He rose again. We're sinners without righteousness, but in a reversal, He took our sins and gives us His righteousness. He ascended, and in a reversal, He's coming back. I hope you're ready. I hope I'm ready. We need to be ready. We don't know when. There's a a dueling of decrees here in Esther 9. And there's a dueling of decrees at the cross. The decree of death and the decree of deliverance. Which one is going to win the day? It's what you do with Jesus that will determine your eternal destiny. I'm out of time. I would love to talk more about this. If you want to talk after the service, you want somebody to pray for you, Pastor Mike's around. I'm sure he's dried off by now. I'm here. We would love, there's so much more that could be said, but let me pray right now. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the great reversal you do in this world. You've done it in my life and I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I know we can stand here in one voice and say, thank you. You've, you've taken us that we're running headlong towards hell just insane, just running off a cliff and you, you turned us around and you brought us into a right relationship with you. Now that we pursue holiness, we pursue righteousness. And many, it was great to see in, uh, in Britt's testimony that we, we may not have these obvious, blatant, horrible sins by worldly standards, but we got maybe some pride in our hearts. We got some... Uh, self-sufficiency where we don't need Jesus. Oh Lord, grant repentance in our lives. Give us faith to trust in you and trust in your son who can bring about that great reversal in our lives, Lord. We ask that, please, humbly, will you do that? And may the offering that we're about to collect, may it be used for that purpose, to, to let it infiltrate our world locally and globally so more and more people would meet him and have their lives turned around and be changed because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.